So today I thought we'd clear our backlog. About six months ago, we solicited topics on our GitHub, and we had a few we didn't think we could do a whole show on, so they've just been languishing there. And today I thought we could just go through and talk a few minutes about each of them. And to start off, actually three different people asked about our pairing slash editor setups. So where do you want to start? Because those things are distinct to me. Pairing slash editing setups? Yeah, like one thing is like for me editing and the other thing is for pairing tools. Well, with our setup, not so much, right? So with, I think, the three of us, except for Pam, all use Tmux. And that makes pairing very easy because we could just SSH into any machine and share a Tmux session. Yeah, you can either use... um I use Wemux, which makes the... So Tmux, to pair somebody, they need to be on your computer in an SSH session or a terminal session <clears throat> in a shell. And they need to have access to the Tmux command, and they need to know where the session socket file is. And Wemux basically makes that socket file thing a lot easier. So <clears throat> you just type Wemux anywhere else in the machine, and it finds the same session and attaches to it. So I've used that a little bit... Um, but that's assuming you can get somebody to who's able to SSH to you. And if you're on the same network as them, if you can VPN in the same place, if you work for like a, a company or like an enterprise that has a VPN, you can be on the same network. That works pretty well. Um, but I've also tried like port forwarding and I've had mixed results of that. But there's also a service called Teammate. And Teammate is a, I believe it's a fork of Tmux. And you run Teammate and it connects to Teammate servers. Mine are always in New York. But, um, and they... They say that it's an encrypted session, um, and then somebody else can SSH to the teammate server and get access to the same thing you see. And uh, it works pretty well. Some some Tmux features act a little weird, like some key bindings don't work anymore. I think they also disable some uh, some commands. Yeah. Oh, so your pair can't like um, like run shell commands essentially. Maybe you could also give up. The person SSHing read-only privileges. Like there's a read-only URL that you can send. Yeah. You know. That's really cool too. Um, so I really like Teammate. Uh, if it's, it's the simplest way to get everything working, but if you have a little more capability with the network, you can do Emacs and it's a little better. Um, and these are both assuming that you're using Terminal Vim or Terminal Emacs. I also like Screen Hero, but it's not as good. I don't think any of the apps that just share your whole screen are as like responsive as sharing a Tmux session. Sometimes you need those, though, right? If you're doing like web development, yeah, you both need to see the page that you're working on. Yeah, but sometimes I'll just share my screen with Skype and won't actually be pairing, and that's sufficient. And then we can look at our our Tmux session and look at our like whatever we're using to quickly share a screen. Oh, so you you code together, and then you can just show them what the page looks like. Yep, and then that doesn't need to be <clears throat> the highest fidelity necessarily. Recently, we were using um, messages or. Mac has uh, screen sharing now, uh, so that's pretty cool. It was similar to uh, Screen Hero, quality-wise. Have any of you tried that? I've done that locally. You can do that over the internet now, right? Yeah, you just type in your Apple ID or like your host name, and uh, you'll connect to that person. How's the experience over the internet? Pretty good. Um, a cork and I tried it, and she was home, and it was fine. Yeah, one thing about pairing, I think it's pretty essential to feel as comfortable as possible. You know, I've had, you know, remote pairing uh, sessions where you're spending eight hours and dealing with a second or two lag for eight hours is just the most frustrating thing ever. Have any of you ever used, uh, like, either a script or 
some other way to like launch a VM in the cloud, like on Amazon or DigitalOcean, that like you spin up a pairing machine and then spin it down at the end of the day. Nope. No. Nope. <laughs> I've heard of people doing this, but I've never paired anybody doing it. Um, where they have like a something that's like you know pair with, and they put in like two email addresses, like their own and somebody else's, and it like spins up a VM uh, on let's say DigitalOcean, installs Vim and Ruby and whatever else that you usually work in, um, and then creates like users for each email address, and then emails them both a password or something or, or a link to SSH, and then. I mean, you're both on the same level of parity as, as far as, like, who's hosting, and you could probably standardize the tools that way. But this probably only makes sense for, like, probably, like, a consulting company. <laughs> like, I know Pivotal, when they pair, they, like, blow out all their, um, they have, like, iMacs at every desk, and they, every night they destroy them and recreate them from the Pivotal ordained, you know, editor setup, so that nobody has, like, their special config in there. That sounds so mean. Nobody still <laughs> has control B as their Tmux leader. Also, couldn't you like you sneak in five minutes early and copy your dot files? Uh, you could do that. I'm assuming that like somebody that has a good idea for some setting, they like open a pull request and add it, and then everybody has access to it. I think one. You know, I actually only generally have one sticking point in editor setups is that I generally keep my text a lot bigger than other people. Me too. I like at least eighteen or twenty four. Yeah, no, me too. I, I've even prob- I think I've even gone up to twenty two, but I know some people who keep it ridiculously small, and I don't know how they still have eyes. <laughs> One day I w- went over to uh, Len's desk, and he, I think you were screen sharing with somebody, and you were seeing their screen, and he has a Retina display, and he had two like really high res screens worth of text on his laptop screen, and it was like probably equivalent of like four point font. I don't remember this. Oh, it was I, I usually do like a big font too. Yeah. Not that. So not that when you you're working on certain projects, I notice that you have a big font. But if you're like just uh, hobbying or coding for fun, you usually rock the small font. Or once you open a new terminal, it's really small, and then you bump it up if you <laughs> like it. I've seen you with some small font one. <laughs> I think it depends if I'm using two screens or one. So I do like my setup with Tmux so that I've got like Vim in one pane and a terminal in the other, and then I could run my tests and see them in the other. So I think I shrink it down when I have a test that's going to fail with like a big stack trace because I hate having to switch and scroll every single time it fails to find out what the actual error was. I can only do the the terminal on the same screen as Vim if I'm on at least like a 27-inch monitor. Otherwise, it's too much noise for me. But then you have to run your test and switch screens and switch back. Not if you use Vim and Dispatch. I run my test with a, a keystroke. So almost like you would use an ID, like a new leader T, and it runs the test in a Vim, what's it called? It runs actually runs them in a Tmux split and then correlates the results back into a quick fix window if they failed. Um, but if they pass, it just goes away. So I just hit leader T and it pops up and goes away and then I keep going. Oh, the quick fix window sounds awesome. And you don't necessarily need to be using Tmux or Dispatch. If it, you're not using Tmux, it'll just create a new iTerm window. That's cool, yeah. It supports uh, iTerm, Screen, Tmux, and I think one other thing. Yeah, I do run leader T in Vim to run my test, but I don't get the results in the quick fix window. Yeah, if you if you use Vim, you should go to github.com slash tpope, T-P-O-P-E, and then just like install every plugin and read the docs, because there's a lot of awesome stuff in there, <laughs> one of which is Dispatch. I also have dispatch mappings for like if I'm in a gem file, it bundles when I do leader T. If I'm in a, or a gem spec, um, if I am in a make file, it will run make. Uh, and I have it configured for like all kinds of other libraries and frameworks. So can, can dispatch run mini test tests? Yes. So mini test has a binary called test RB. 
Um, or if you have mini test slash auto run set up, you can do Ruby and then the file. Mm-hmm. So it gets a little confusing because if you're using RSpec and mini test or mini spec, they have the same file name. So it's it's kind of difficult to tell dispatch which one you're in because you need to like match on file type or file mm-hmm. name. So I have it like underscore test.rb, I want to run mini test, and an underscore spec.rb, I want to run RSpec. Okay. Because I tried doing the Ruby file name with this patch, and it was just blowing up on me. I got, I don't remember the error, but like it would work sometimes, and then it wouldn't work. And yeah, that's one it. thing I like about my setup. I use T-Slime and Turbux, and it just knows what kind of file I'm in and knows the command to run. So if I'm in a Cucumber feature, or I'm in an RSpec, or I'm in test unit, I just do leader T, and it runs the right command. And I can do leader T to run the whole file, or I can run leader capital T to run focused. It'll just run the, the spec that I'm in. And then I can be anywhere else in any other file and hit leader T again, and it'll check if I'm not in a test file, it'll run the last test that it ran. So I can I can see the failing test, then I can go to the code and make it work and just run the test again really quickly. Yeah, the cool thing about um, Dispatch, and then there's another Tempo plugin called Projectionist, um, it can actually find the alternate file. Um, so one thing I'll do a lot is I'll open an implementation file like in, in Ruby, like lib slash something, and then I'll do colon capital A, and it will open the alternate file, which will, assuming your tests are named similarly to your test files are named similarly to your implementation file structure, it will find the alternate file and open it for you. So if that works, then um, then dispatch will also be able to find the alternate test file. So if you're like in a Rails controller and hit leader T, it will try to find the controller test and run it for you. That's smart. Yeah. And I just saw that that, that, uh, that got upgraded to do fuzzy matching. So I think it's actually smarter now. Like if, you're, if your file names don't exactly match, it will still probably run the right thing. Pam, are you still doing mostly Swift? Nah, I, uh, no. R- relapsed into JavaScript. <laughs> well, JavaScript and really I'm, I'm doing an implementation project that mostly involves coordinating some four or five teams uh, and trying to get an, an implementation out. Uh, working with vendors and stuff. Um, but you're doing a lot of like talking and communicating. Doing a lot with of talking. Yeah. Um, a little bit of a bit of code. I just did a bunch of stuff yesterday um, to do a feature flag. But but yeah, actually with Swift, I'm I'm hoping I might have some time this week in my last week for hacker school to look at it again because there is a new Swift out. So there's a most recent release of Swift that includes a more pleasant way of writing if let statements, so you don't have to make the pyramid of doom. If let, what is that? Uh, oh yeah, okay. So if let the construct. So because it's statically typed, if you get data and let's say you can the the example that is what led to all those posts about about using monads and json and stuff is because if you consume json and it's in this you can in, import it into say a ns dictionary because objective c types generally don't uh, they don't give a shit about the context of the dictionary so but if you want to get something inside the dictionary and store it in a value you need to uh, declare the type of that value so you first attempt to cast it as that type so if let so let being the assigning. And so if I can assign this value as this type, then continue on. And so in a in a dictionary tree, can you all hear my cat? I can. 
<laughs> she was so distressed. <laughs> um, but uh, so yeah, so in a dictionary tree, so if I have, you know, even if I had something like a blog and I had, you know, if let post as an array and then if let, you know, post zero as um as ns dictionary if let post zero title as so you see how it goes into the pyramid of doom so and this will um it allows you to assign multiple if lets in one line and you're saying if it if the not only if it like doesn't exist but if the type doesn't match if it cannot be yes if it cannot be cast at that type as that type which makes sense so it, it in won't that raise an if error, it will just go to the else yeah oh cool and you have to cover all the else mm. so um, I mean, you can do nothing in the else, but you have to make sure you have an else. Interesting. But yeah, so like if you if you bring in data and you say this is an array and it's an, it can't become an array, then that's I mean that's type safety. That's what it's doing. Speaking of, I really liked your uh, your Monad post about jQuery and then um, the response from John Moore. Yeah, I, oh. all I heard was blah blah blah. John Moore said I was right. <laughs> no, I actually, I, it is a it is a really good post, but I I did in fact scroll down to the bottom to see if he t- said that I was right. <laughs> no, yeah, I read I read your thing, which was essentially. What do you want to tell us about it? I mean, essentially, I had I, it actually was a in a, a weird epiphany where I was like, does does jQuery implement a Monad interface? Because when you chain jQuery, if you mess up in the beginning of the chain, it doesn't error out. It just doesn't do anything. So it's kind of like a, I think an either or a maybe. Like, like that's what it looked like to me. You know, if you have, because if you, that's an implementation of a Monad interface. If you have something and you chain, it's like if you have a promise and you say, go, like, you know, promise and then with this value, do this. But if the promise errors, it's not going to continue on and do weird things with an error value or no value. So, and then it turned out that jQuery does in fact act like a monadic interface. And John Moore's post has a more, has a proof. I basically was looking kind of outside in and looking how it behaved and saying, you know, like that looks, you know, that walks like a duck to me, but you know, I'm not an, an expert in these things or maybe no one is. Uh, John Moore claims he's not, but I think his post is more thorough his, than mine. His post looked like an expert. Um, I yeah, his post looked like a proof. <laughs> so I've been reading about monads for probably like a year, year and a half, and I still don't really understand. I think I understand the monadic laws. Maybe, maybe I do know what monad is. I'm just not like used to like. It sounds like you probably do. You do so like the map, like, it's not, not the territory. Like I don't feel like I I feel like I know what a monad is. Like I know what a type class is. Was that was a that? pun? Could that be a pun? Was that the map, the map is not the territory? Get it? Because it could be. Oh jeez. Because <laughs> monads no. have to implement map. Uh, <laughs> but but I was I was surprised that um, I feel like I understand more about monads now a lot more reading your post and then John Moore's response than I than I did reading anything else. Maybe I was just ready. Maybe I was ready to be enlightened. Well, um, I got really excited about it because I thought it was exciting to see to see an example of I guess it's you know it's especially because it's jQuery. Yeah. Because it's the the interface for JavaScript that people who don't know JavaScript use, <laughs> and then it happens to be monadic. Yeah, I, I I would not have expected jQuery of all things to teach me about monads. So yeah, we link, we should link to these two in the show notes. That can happen. So next issue in our backlog, listener Zorn asked about time management. 
how much time per week does it take to continue to grow as a professional outside of your production responsibilities? Assuming this other time is spent on things like reading books, experimenting on side projects, or whatnot, how much of the time should be shouldered by the employer, if applicable? Should this be an expectation of an employer that each employee will do some amount of weekly learning outside of the official 40-hour paid time? So I do happen to like spend some time in my free time doing coding things or I guess like improving my craft, but those are more like compulsive things. I don't plan that time. It's just more like, oh, I really want to play with this thing and I go do it. But I, th- I think that what, what that was alluding to was that like, h- how do we get better like at work or like should should work help us get better, um, like a lot time for it. And I, th- I feel like I, let's say you want to get better at testing. You should just not write any code at work unless you write a test for it. Like if you want to improve yourself as uh, practicing TDD. So it's not like I work for a company and I want to write code and then they don't require me to write tests so that if um, I want to write tests, I'm doing that on my own or I'm like learning it on my own. Just just do it as part of your day job. Like nobody's going to fire you for writing tests. Um, but imagine. they might fire you for writing Haskell instead of like C sharp. Yeah, that's that's a little different. I'm I'm more considering like I don't know, like I want to learn Vim, I want to learn TDD, I want to learn uh, I don't know how to do object oriented programming in Ruby better. Like you could just do or how to refactor. You could just do those things at your job. Hopefully, um, like Katrina Owen has a, had a great talk. I think it was 2013 uh, about therapeutic refactoring, where she would just come in every morning and before before stand up and before she did like her day job. Um, I still think she was on the clock, but she would just come in and find a piece of code in the code base that she didn't like and spend like half hour, an hour refactoring it. And she did that every day until she got really, really good at refactoring. I'll link to that in the show notes too. When I was an employee, I did do a lot of learning just by, you know, doing new projects and new technologies, doing spikes. And I feel like I have a harder time picking up new technologies as a contractor because as an employee, I could say, let's do this project in Rails and it's going to be my first Rails project and it's going to be terrible. And I can't say that as a contractor. So I have to be, I feel like I have to be good at a technology before I could actually use it for a client. And I find a hard time to, you know, where, where's that time where I can do a project and do it poorly and make it a learning experience? Mm. Yeah, I would say if, if you want to learn something, like if you really want to, you'll just, you'll be able to help yourself. You'll just go do it. But I mean, I, when I hear the question, one thing that stands out is the, should an employer t- expect someone to spend extra time outside of work? Mm. And the answer is definitely no. Yeah. Um, so... I kind of walked myself into a corner there. <laughs> it is a definitive no. Um, like, I guess it's it's the hard thing of, I, it just sounds so cliche to be like, but people who are good might want to do it anyway. But then you can't say that because then employers are like, well, then that obviously means I can exploit it. And that's uncool. Yeah. Um, and I mean, also there are things, if you are, if you do want to be an employer that encourages your people to do things outside of work, there are very, very obvious to me, maybe not obvious to them, uh, things that you can do to support, such as you should host a meetup at your office, like close to after work hours, so probably like 6 p.m., so early meetups. Um, You should have food. Like if people don't have to leave the building, it drastically increases their attendance. Like whenever I've hosted the meetup, the JavaScript meetup at offices, there's inevitably, you know, way more people from that company who than who RSVP'd because it's easy. And so if you want to help people attend, then, you know, bring the knowledge into your house is one way to do it. Um, If you want to encourage that, but obviously it's not required. And also, I do think that people underestimate 
often underestimate their downtime during the day. Uh, so, and you can choose like what kind of learning medium you want. Like if you, you know, you have downtime because you just finished a, a piece of code that you were working really hard on and you can get a snack and watch a conference video or something. And so there are ways to, to work it into your day. I used to like, uh, if I was in, you know, pointless meetings where, you know, 15 people are in the meeting and only two people actually talk, bring my laptop and I would just do coding more, um, more, more playing around exploring than, than production work in the meeting. I mean, obviously, the, 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 the best answer to that is don't have those meetings and don't invite everybody that needs, only the people that need to be there. But if you're stuck in that situation, might as well get something out of it. I've picked ProTube before, and I think that's let me watch a lot more conference videos. So I follow Confreaks on YouTube. And the thing I like about the ProTube app and YouTube in the browser is that you can watch it at faster than one speed which I find useful just in order to keep my rapt attention. So a lot of times talks, if I'm not physically there, I have a hard time staying focused uh, at, at like 1.25 or 1.5. It's a little faster. So I'll watch a 40-minute video in like 25 minutes, but I'll also uh, be, be forced to keep more rapt attention. Len, I found another person that listens to podcasts at 2S. <laughs> I think there are dozens of us. <laughs> well, I only know two so far. I think I heard of some some couple, uh, like married couple, that did like agile as part of their day job, and then had like like weekly planning meetings and retros for their you know home life. So Jason Cox, <laughs> I uh, think he might have been saying that, so you didn't name the person. Uh, I, I didn't I didn't know if I I kind of oh. I guess we're adding maybe editing this anyway. I've heard I've uh, heard a few people that do that actually. Yeah, Jason Cox told me they do that. They use Trello, I think, or some type of thing. That- yeah, they plan it out real good. I know I've heard a story, people with kids that did that too, and they assign issues to their kids and they move it down the Kanban board. I feel like that could be really traumatic if you are a kid and then you you have no idea that this thing in your house is actually how like corporate America works. <laughs> and then you get your first corporate job and you're like, but I thought mom was the only one who kept a board and kept, kept things in order that way. <laughs> it could be, but then you'd be, it'd feel like home, right? And you might be able to excel at your job. That assumes that agile helps you excel at your job, Jervon. <laughs> <sighs> Not this podcast again. The what podcast again? Um, I'm done talking about agile, leading Kanban. I just want to Fire them off. Well, we can pick up on a different topic on the backlog. Yep. So the next one is also from Zorn, uh, Mike Zornek on Zorn on Twitter. Uh, the about box and signing your work. There was once a time when uh, companies like Apple had software about boxes that listed the names of the people who worked on the project. Rumor was this was removed as part of an effort to stop job poaching. <laughs> I'm not saying this would be a good move for everyone, but those teams out there are really embracing software craftsmanship. Uh, maybe we should reinvent the about box for modern times to sign our work and share our principles. So Photoshop had that, and Photoshop always crashed. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how much software craftsmanship is going on there. So it's a box of people you can curse at. Yeah. Um, I feel like using open source tools, like command line things or gems, um, usually the author is pretty prominent either in the readme or sometimes in like homebrew and like brew info. I'm not saying all the time, but it doesn't take much effort for me to find out who wrote something. 
Um, and I wouldn't want to be kind of that stuff plastered all over the place. Maybe he's talking more about like modern times, about maybe like mobile apps and web pages. Um, I do like when I'm using an app that I love, like seeing the team that made it. But I guess it depends on how big the team is. Well, I mean, I could see how it could turn into things where you where you say who whose name qualifies as being in the about box, which. I don't know. That's just it, you end up in. I guess it's almost like a kindergarten situation of should no one get the candy or everyone get the candy? Everyone. Should. And also with authoring, order matters. So are you first author or are you last? Or it's alphabetical. Mm, I hate alphabetical because then it puts me at the end. Justin Campbell. <laughs> well, that's too bad. Do first yeah. name alphabetical. Do random. I'm still at the end with first name alphabetical. At least I'm in the middle-ish. Name my I, become, I come before all the Sarahs and all the Steves. Give me my next child, underscore. Prime. But the actual marker, like it'll be the tick. The uh, next child will be named Prime. <laughs> I feel like Twitter like has taken over for this, though, too. So if you're working on a product that you actually care about, you can tweet about it and kind of sign your work that way. Yeah, I mean, that goes into that I think people should feel comfortable saying, hey, here's this thing I worked on, but it also has the predicate. It's a good question because, you know, that has the predicate that people already maybe follow you or know who you are. But, you know, I think the readme is a great place. Um, I think it's, oh, I think it's a good idea. It'd be kind of cool to bring the, the about box back, especially, you know, I hate the reason that it went away is because of job poaching. You know, if your people are poachable, treat them better. <laughs> So how do you all have, a, since we don't have an about box, how do you have co-leadership or when that, like working on work projects or things you're releasing? I don't, know, I don't think I need my name on a product to feel like I own it. So do you guys want to do picks? Yeah, I will pick uh, forward JS because I wrote a little write up about what I learned and I think it was really good. And I think the organizers are, you know, very ambitious people because they're doing it again in July. Uh, so they're doing it multiple times a year, which is just, I, they are busy people. Um, so I'll pick forward. And then someone dropped a link. So when I was searching the favorites of exercises to uh, learn Swift in Playgrounds. Uh, so like Playgrounds are the, the editor type thing in the new Xcode that lets you play with Swift um, and kind of it's a good way to learn Swift. Uh, and there's this repo that has some interactive Swift Playgrounds with embedded documentation. So I haven't checked it out completely, but it seems pretty cool. Cool. Um, so this is the time of year where, as a TV snob, I'm just overloaded. Uh, a lot of good shows have come back, and I'm going to pick Shameless, which I think is hugely underrated. It stars uh, William H. Macy. It, it is a remake of a UK show, but I think it, it has a, a lot better production quality. And um, yeah, it's really good. Uh, it is a little harder to catch up on if you don't have like Showtime anytime, I think. Uh, but the other thing I started watching is Better, Saul, better Call Saul, which is the Breaking Bad prequel. And and I didn't have high hopes for it, but it's turning out to be better than I expected, uh, and darker than I expected as like the prequel of uh, was basically a comic a comic relief character. So there's my picks. Justin, do you have a pick? Try and remember if I already picked this for. Um, it is a water pitcher <laughs> for your fridge. Um, it's called the Camelback Relay. Uh, I put a link in the my pick, but it's essentially a water pitcher for your fridge. And the things I hate about water pitchers are. You fill them and they take too long to fill. So you need to keep like turning the water off and waiting. So it fills at the speed that your faucet works. 
And then also, the other thing I don't like about um, the other picture we had was when you get to pour it, like one time out of 15 or 20, <laughs> the top would fall off and you'd get water all your kitchen, at least for ours. Uh, so this one actually snaps into the container so the, the lid can't fall off. So yeah, I never thought I'd be excited about a water pitcher, but this one's pretty cool. The Camelback Relay. Jervon, do you have a pick? I do. Uh, so my music pick is going to be Mark Ronson. He's a producer, produces a lot of good songs. And then uh, my programming pick is Teammate, because it's awesome um, for remote pairing. Yep. Cool. So show notes are at turing.cool slash 39. Follow us on Twitter at turingcool, and I'll talk to you guys next week. See ya. Bye. Bye.